and no grand inquisitor has in readiness such terrible tortures as has anxiety, and no spy knows to attack more artfully, choosing the instant when you are weakest, nor knows how to lay traps where you will be caught and ensnared, as anxiety knows how. And no sharp-witted judge knows how to interrogate, to examine you, as anxiety does, which never lets you escape, neither at work nor at play, neither by day nor by night. Soren Kierkegaard, The Concept of Dread, 1844. Welcome to the Benzo Free Podcast, your home for an honest, straightforward, and personal discussion about anti-anxiety drugs, their effects, and how to deal with dependence and withdrawal. Whether you have taken benzodiazepines, Z drugs, or any other tranquilizers, know someone who has, or you just want help dealing with chronic anxiety and insomnia, this is your podcast. I'm your host, D.E. Foster, author of the book, Benzo Free, The World of Anti-Anxiety Drugs and the Reality of Withdrawal. I'm so glad you joined us today. Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. It just might feel a little better on the other side. Well, hello there. This is D, and welcome to episode 9 of the Benzo Free Podcast. That opening was from Kierkegaard, as I mentioned. I'm, I came across it during my research for the book, and I like to use it now and then. It, I first saw the quote in a book by Scott Stossel. Um, it was called My Age of Anxiety. If you are looking for an excellent book on anxiety, you might want to check this one out. It's really worth the read. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for you. Since our feature today is on anxiety, I kind of thought that was the perfect opening. Things finally um, slowed down around here a little bit, at least. Now, now that we're on our normal weekly schedule for podcast releases, I've had some time to work on the website, respond to a bunch of emails, and post some news articles on the Facebook page. We did hit a milestone on Monday, or I thought it was a milestone on Monday. We reached 200 likes on the Benzo Free Facebook page, and that was awesome. I was really excited to reach 200. Um, and then I checked it again on Tuesday morning, and we made 391 likes. And then this morning, um, when I re-recording um, this episode, because I had a few glitches along the way, I looked again, and we were at 565. <laughs> Um, I just think something went wrong. <laughs> it was weird to see so many likes on the Facebook page. And I just have to say thank you. Thank you for spreading the word about Benzo Free and for supporting in what we're doing here. Truly, I really appreciate it. Thanks. I kind of want to focus on a different group of people in the intro today, if that's okay. And that is of the caregiver. Whether you are a friend, brother, sister, mother father, child, neighbor, bowling buddy, soccer teammate, quilting companion, whatever. If you have someone in your life dependent on benzos and you are helping them out, thanks and, and welcome. I'm so glad you are here. I realize that I gear a lot of my content towards the patient, but I also want to make sure that I'm reaching out to the caregiver. I can't imagine what it is like to care for someone in severe benzo withdrawal. 
my wife, Shanna, was my caregiver, and she did this in various stages of intensity for several years. I, I, I can't imagine what she went through. W without her, I'm not sure where I'd be. She even wrote an entire chapter in the book on her experience in that role, and it was very eye-opening for me. It really helped me to see the struggles she had, and it brought me to tears at times. I just got to say thanks, babe. I really appreciate all you did. Benza withdrawal is hard on the patient. We all know that, but we're not the only ones affected by this. For all of you who have put your life on hold to take care of a loved one in Benza withdrawal, or even, you know, just stop by with some soup <laughs> to check on them, I just want to say thank you. We need you, even if we forget to tell you so. I'm planning on doing an episode on the caregiver soon, so please stay tuned and check that out when it comes out. I also have some good news on the interview front. I have already lined up two interviews for upcoming episodes. In fact, I'm going to be recording the first one this weekend, so please stay tuned. Those will be coming out soon. Today's episode is going to be a little longer. We have a pretty juicy topic, and I want to allot it the time it deserves and allot the stories the time they deserve and everything else. So, so please bear with me. Let me know what you think about the slightly longer format. I started out with the initial episodes around 25 to 30 minutes, but today it'll be a bit more like 45 minutes to an hour. I'm recording it now, and when I record it, I don't always know how long I'm going to go <laughs> with the material I have. So so let me know what you think. I'm, I'm curious to see your feedback. The format today will follow our same standard format. We'll start out with our intro, which is where we are now. Go on to the mailbag, Benzo News, Benzo Stories, and then our feature. And today's feature is Anxiety, the Beast of Benzo Withdrawal. This is part of our ongoing symptom series, which we will cover periodically over the coming several months. And then we'll close out our episode. Now, a real quick reminder, I always need to sneak this in, as you all probably know by now, but... I do want to hear your feedback, even if it's just a quick hi to say you like or don't like the podcast. Um, we want to hear from you. Comments, questions, changes, you name it, we want to hear it. Please visit our feedback form at benzofree.org slash feedback. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list at benzofree.org slash subscribe. And I also need to remind you that the BenzoFree podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzo Free Podcast or of its host. Okay, that brings us to the mailbag. I have one question and one comment today, so let's, let's tackle those. The first one is from Jill, and she asks, Did you use any nutritional supplements during your taper and withdrawal? That, that's a question that's quite common on the discussion boards. I do see it quite frequently. Now, I, I can't recommend any nutritional supplements. I'm sorry to say I'm not a nutritionist, so it wouldn't be appropriate. If you're looking for any specifics, I would have to refer you to your doctor and the Ashton Manual. Of course, this might also be a question you might want to take onto the discussion boards where people are freer to state their opinions, but please keep in mind all the information on those discussion boards are opinion and make sure you use your common sense as you're reading. But then again, you know, I noticed that Jill actually asked what I did. And that's a question I can't answer. So 
The truth is I used very few, if any. P part of that issue was my stomach. On top of benzo belly symptoms of all sorts, I also suffer from severe gastritis and acid reflux. And did long before my trip down benzo lane. <laughs> and unfortunately, most pills, supplements, that kind of thing, vitamins, upset my stomach. I, I did take um, B12 supplements after my taper, but these were prescribed by my doctor. And um, I had taken some tests which showed that I actually was low on B12. So I needed to take those to help supplement it. Once I stopped taking my, my um, stomach medication, my B12 levels came back up and I no longer had to take the supplements. I did find that kefir milk, um, also pronounced kefir milk or even kefir milk, depending on where you're from, I found that it helped out my stomach when it was really freaking out with benzo belly. And, you know, I believe it helped me to discontinue my stomach meds. Um, it's something I continued until only a month or two ago. But like I said, I'm not recommending it because others have said that it made things worse. So you have to, again, use your common sense here and find out what works for you. I know I sound like a broken record here, and, and so many of you are desperately seeking answers when so few are available. But when it comes to nutritional supplements like anything else, everybody is different. I repeat it so often because it is true. Whenever I was in doubt about something, I'd go back to the number one resource, and I rarely went wrong when I did. So let's go there right now. Let's see what Professor Ashton says about supplements. She says, quote, A normal healthy diet, which includes generous amounts of fruit and vegetables and a source of protein and fats from meat or vegetables, and not too much pure sugar or junk foods, provides all the nutrients a person needs. There is no general need for dietary supplements or extra vitamins or minerals or for detoxifying measures. All these can be harmful in excess, end quote. Well, I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for with a question, but I hope it helps um, at least a little bit. Now let's go on to our second item in the mailbag today, and this is a comment from Catherine in Camrose, Alberta, Canada. And Catherine writes, quote, Just listen to the Ashton Manual episode. Very well done. Uplifting and informative. I had one comment where I felt a bit thrown by a term you used, which was you were grateful to Dr. Ashton for your sobriety. I'm sure you're aware of the community's sensitivity to addiction language, and please, please forgive me if I've forgotten any part of your bio and you also had a struggle with alcohol. Perhaps there's perfectly good reason from that possibility you use sobriety to describe where you are now, but... I did find it triggering as alcohol addiction is not in the same category as prescribed benzodependence. That's my only negative criticism, actually more of an observation, end quote. Well, thank you, Catherine. That was a great comment, and I really appreciate you letting me know. Here's my, here's my response to that. First off, I did not mean to imply anything by the sobriety comment. It's part of my vocabulary, and it probably just came out during the recording. While I have not had direct experience with substance abuse myself, I do have some people in my life who have and are dealing with it, and it can be heartbreaking. So yes, the terminology is common to me, and that's probably why I used it. 
Like most of us in the benzo community, I am well aware of the negative connotation of some of these terms. I, I realize that terms like addiction, addict, drug abuse, and anything else that classifies people who suffer from iatrogenic long-term benzodependence as that of a drug addict is offensive to some in the benzo community. In my book, on the website, and in the podcast, I do make a conscious attempt to use the term dependence or physical dependence when referring to our condition, and not addiction. Might I slip up at times? Sure, I guarantee you I will. But I'll try and be better. Still, much like many other issues that I face in this podcast, I am walking a fine line. While I want to be sensitive to people's aversion to certain terms, I also don't want to be exclusionary. So please, if you are dealing with addiction on top of dependence, whether you got the drug from a doctor or on the street, don't feel ostracized. This podcast is for you just as much as it is for anyone else. And that'll wrap up our mailbag. Let's move on to Benzo News. Our first item is one I posted on our Facebook page. It's from an article in Vice.com in which Dr. Christy Huff of the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, or BIC, was interviewed. The article was titled, The Deadly Worst Case Scenario for America's Xanax Obsession. And it highlighted the difficulties in Scotland when the government tried to crack down on benzodiazepines. As overdoses increase, which sadly has been the case, governments start to crack down. On top of that, litigation fears also rise and doctors begin to crack down. These are good trends for helping to reduce the overprescribing of benzodiazepines, but it leaves those who are dependent on the drugs in a very dangerous position, unable to get prescriptions for the drugs they so desperately need. In the article, Dr. Huff stated, quote, I think it's getting worse, end quote. She made it clear that while the BIC promotes the reduction of overprescribing of benzodiazepines, they also recognize the dangers of abrupt cessation and the serious harm it can do. We can't just remove benzos from doctors' offices. This is a complicated process, and it needs to be handled delicately. But, but don't get me wrong. It needs to be handled and not ignored as it has been for several decades. I also posted an article on our Facebook page that I refer to often in the book, which is getting a lot of attention. This was an article written by Dr. Alan Francis back in 2016. It was originally published on Recovery Brands Pro Talk Pro Corner, but I used the reprint on the HuffingtonPost.com for our Facebook page. Dr. Francis has some amazing credentials. He is Professor Emeritus at Duke University and was chairman of the DSM-IV Task Force for the American Psychiatric Association. Along with excerpts of the Ashton Manual, I would often bring in a copy of this article to my doctor visits when I was going through withdrawal, and it made a difference. Doctors believe other doctors, especially ones with strong credentials, and this one really fit that bill. The article talks about the dangers of benzos, and he doesn't pull punches. He states that benzos harm in three ways. One, deadly overdoses. Two, painful and dangerous withdrawal symptoms. And three, day-to-day -day impacts on brain functioning. He also raises awareness of the increasing dangers of benzos in the elderly community. 
In the article, Dr. Francis says the following about benzo withdrawal. He says, quote, Benzo withdrawal is a beast, often terrifying, sometimes dangerous, and almost always drawn out over a very long period of time. End quote. In my book, I stated that I cried when I first read this article, and <laughs> I cry a lot now. <laughs> this whole returning emotions thing really gets the better of me sometimes, and, and I did that when I first read this. See, Professor Ashton, Professor Later, and so many others have been raising the alarm bells of benzos for decades. But this was the first article I came across in my research for the book, written by a top-notch U.S. medical professional who came out and said it, Benzo withdrawal is a beast. For those of us in the middle of withdrawal, hearing someone in his position come out and say that publicly, well, it made this grown man cry. <laughs> anyway, if you are looking for something to take with you to your doctor's office, this article might be a good start. I'll put a link to it in the show notes like usual. I also shared an article this week which stated that benzos now cause more ER visits than opioids. A, a recent study by U.S. News & World Report stated that benzodiazepines such as alprazolam and lorazepam, which respectively are marketed as Xanax and Ativan, are, quote, most commonly implicated in health crises that lead to an ER visit, followed by prescription opioids, end quote. Of the 360,000 ER visits researchers identified which involved misuse of pharmaceuticals, benzos were the primary drug in 47% of them. And I also shared an opinion article from the New York Times this week on the Facebook page, but, you know, I really don't want to get into that one here. If you're curious, it's on the Facebook page. Please go check it out. But since this episode is going to run long anyway, I think we should move on. And, as many of you know by now, that brings us to Benzo Stories. I have been receiving some amazing stories so far, and it is great. Please keep them coming. You know, I, I can't promise every story will end up on the podcast, but I'm going to sure try. I currently have a very small backlog of stories, including ones from the United Kingdom, Switzerland, even Indonesia that I'll be covering soon. And I should be able to get to all of them over the next few weeks, but please... Don't stop sending them to me. This is a community podcast, and sharing your stories with others is part of what makes it so. I read every story I receive, and it makes me feel a, a little bit more connected with each of you. I really want to hear your story, and I'll do my best to share it on the podcast when I can. And before I share the stories with you today, um, you may have noticed that I kind of do this intro or preamble to the stories where I, I either talk about my experiences in the location people are from, or I imagine what it would be like to be in that location, or I, I look up and learn things about, you know, where they're from. I kind of have fun with this. The reason I do it is because this, this podcast is very serious and I'm, I'm trying to add a little levity, you know, here and there. I, I don't know if it works or not. Let me know what you think. If anyone feels this is in any way disrespectful to the people sharing their stories, please let me know, because that is definitely not my intent. And that brings us to our stories. Uh, first up, this is from Kathy in Windsor, Colorado. Yes, Kathy lives less than an hour from me 
she is the closest person to me so far, uh, geographically speaking, of anybody's um, story I've shared so far. Windsor is this small town on the front range of Colorado near Loveland and Fort Collins. It's, its population is only about 23,000, 25,000 people. I can't say I've ever been to Windsor, I'm sad to say, but I'm, I'm sure I've driven by it many times. I know where it's at. And, you know, it's this beautiful area because most of the front range of Colorado has this amazing view of mountains, white-capped, tall, rocky mountains. And Windsor's no different. And I can picture wheat fields, grass fields blowing in the wind with this gorgeous view of the mountains in the backdrop. So that's the picture I'm going to paint today. And now let's hear from Kathy's story. Kathy says the following, quote, I am 73, and I have been on Valium for 13 years. I was prescribed 5 milligrams daily for pelvic muscle spasms and pain. They worked well for 5 years. I got very sick for 6 months with vertigo, then 24-7 nausea. Valium was the only thing that made it tolerable. For four of those months, I was taking up to 35 milligrams of Valium a day. I had my gallbladder removed. The nausea went away. My doctor told me to go off the Valium five milligrams every other day. I got a bladder infection from such a tight pelvis, I, I couldn't urinate, sleep, or eat. I was prescribed Cipro, and the rest is a terrible nightmare. Not understanding Valium at all, I thought I was sick for the last eight years of trying to get off Valium. I have gone to a gastroenterologist, neurologist, psychiatrist, autoimmune specialist, pain specialists, naturopathic doctors, therapists, neurofeedback, biofeedback, PT, for my almost daily withdrawal symptoms. I am on four milligrams daily. I recently had the second shingles shot that has dramatically increased my convulsions, which I hadn't had for almost a year. The last convulsions happened after I went down from 5 milligrams to 4 milligrams of Valium. My psychiatrist wanted me to jump off of the 5 milligrams of Valium to just get it over with. I didn't take his advice. The convulsions have been so bad that I have taken 1 milligram of Ativan three times since October 10th. You see, I was a skier, backpacker, mountain biker. I'd, I'd whitewater canoe. I was a master swimmer, wife, mom, and teacher. I am now pretty much disabled, although I hope to try Tai Chi soon. Valium has taken away my life and many friends. At this point, I don't know whether to continue the brutal withdrawal or just up my dose. I have too many symptoms to mention and nowhere to go for help. I am feeling pretty hopeless and a drag on my family. I had surgery on my sacrum in 2013 and was on hydromorphone for two and a half years and got myself off that opioid in five weeks. I wish Valium was the same and as easy to get off of. I also would love to be in a support group, but none exist where I live. I am just wearing out from this horrible drug. End quote. Uh, pr prior to sharing Kathy's story here, I did let her know that I had been planning on starting a Northern Colorado Benza support group and hoped she would come. Hopefully I can get that going in the next couple of months. 
Thank you so much for sharing today, Kathy. I really appreciate it, and I'm really glad you shared your story today. Please take care, keep in touch, and I hope to see you soon. The second story is our first audio story. Yay, I am excited for this. This is the first story that you will be able to hear in the person's own voice. Jeff is from Winfield, Illinois, and has been part of Benzo Free um, from October of last year. Now, that may not seem that long ago, but since I only launched the website last September, it, that's pretty long. <laughs> We have corresponded from time to time, and I encouraged him to share his story for the podcast, which he graciously agreed. Now, as with many of the audio files submitted to me, there will be some pops on the recording, which I was unable to clean up. But Jeff has a great voice for radio, and I think you'll really enjoy hearing his story. Now, of course, even though he is going to be the one telling you his story, I still get to paint the picture. So let's take a look at Winfield, Illinois. I actually spent my grade school years just outside of Chicago in the town of St. Charles, which is practically next door to Winfield. The whole area of West Chicago is just beautiful. I really miss that area. One of my favorite memories growing up there was the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. Every year in grade school, we would take a field trip into downtown Chicago to go visit this museum. I even went back there a few years ago, and it still is one of the best museums in the world, I believe. If, if you visit Chicago, don't miss it. This is a unique opportunity, not just for children, but for adults alike. And I, I also have to admit, not to alienate any other U.S. city, but Chicago is my favorite, hands down. Sorry, New York and L.A., I'm partial to my true love, the Windy City. Let's hear what Jeff has to say. I'm a 54-year-old man. I was first prescribed Xanax back in 1987. I had just graduated from college and had taken my first real job. I was excited, but even more so, I was scared that I didn't have what it took to abandon my college lifestyle and embark on a career. I began having very strong surges of anxiety, bordering on panic, and within a few weeks I had become rather stuck in an acute anxiety state. I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and was given a tricyclic antidepressant called amipramine, as well as a prescription for 0.25 milligrams of Xanax to be taken only at bedtime. Over the next several months I got used to my new life, became adept at my job, and my symptoms waned. I discontinued the antidepressant, but I continued to take the 0.25 to 0.5 milligrams of Xanax every night at bedtime, and never stopped. When I look back over all the years I only used Xanax at bedtime, I don't really feel like it had any detrimental effects on me, other than feeling groggy when it was time to get up in the morning. I'm sure it had other negative effects, but nothing particularly disabling or uncomfortable. I do know that I was emotionally dependent on Xanax to fall asleep every night, and there must have been some degree of chemical dependence as well. During the coming years, my anxiety would flare up from time to time due to stressful life circumstances, and as the situations resolved, my anxiety would always go back into remission. In 2010, I had some marital and job problems, and that old anxiety made a predictable return. My doctor recommended increasing my Xanax use, and for the first time in my life, I started using it during the day. 
I didn't think much of it at the time. I was grateful for the relief it provided, and my doctor clearly felt that I could benefit from it. Over the next several months, a powerful physical dependence took hold, but I was completely unaware of what it was. I just continued treating my escalating anxiety with more Xanax. It was during the fall of 2011 when I entered into a different state of being. From that time forward, I was out of my mind with constant fear, terror, and anxiety. I was in that fearful state around the clock, and I was having to get up during the middle of the night to take additional Xanax, only to wake the next morning in utter terror. Of course, I was in a miserable state of tolerance withdrawal, but I had no idea what that was. Several times over the next five years, I asked my psychiatrist if the Xanax could actually be causing my symptoms, and he assured me this was not the case and that I needed weekly counseling. I did weekly counseling for over two years, and my counselor was puzzled as to why I was not making any progress. Even though my life circumstances were settled and stable, this feeling of constant fear raged on, and I was barely functional on any level. Neither my psychiatrist nor my counselor recognized the signs and symptoms of severe tolerance, and I was given many additional medications for my, quote, severe treatment-resistant anxiety, end quote. Finally, in January of 2017, I conducted massive research on benzodiazepines and became fully aware of the devastating harm these drugs had been causing me for years. I discovered a huge online community of people whose stories corroborated my own. I was immediately determined to get off the Xanax. I was in such severe tolerance withdrawal, I didn't feel that a slow, symptom-guided taper was possible, as I was not able to stabilize at any dose. I controlled the rate of my four-month-long taper, which is quite rapid among those in the know. This may have been a mistake. My symptoms are almost entirely emotional, mental. The fear and terror are by far the worst symptoms and are completely crippling. I also suffer from severe cognitive disruption, and mental fatigue and derealization are staggering. I lost my job two weeks into my taper and have not been able to work since. My wife and I have sold our home, and we have separated, and I'm living with my parents. In summary, I have lost my health, my career, my home, my finances, and by the time this is over, I may have lost my marriage. Benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome has all but destroyed me. I'm now just over 20 months off, and I have recently finally experienced my first measurable improvement. My symptoms are finally starting to diminish, and for the first time in almost two years, I feel as though I will fully recover from this eventually, although I probably have several months ahead of me. Thank you for listening to my story, and good luck in your healing journeys. Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad you are starting to turn the corner, and I hope you can start piecing your life back together. And thanks for sharing your story here. We really appreciate it. Please, keep in touch. And that brings us to our feature. Yes, we are finally there. <laughs> Took us a little bit to get here, but you know, it was really good stuff, and I hope you feel the same way. Our feature topic today is anxiety, the beast of benzo withdrawal. 
If you recall, last episode, we divided benzo symptoms into two categories, and those were psychological and physical. Today, we will start with the first group in the psychological category, which is anxiety. Now, I, I didn't choose anxiety as the first one just because it was alphabetically first, which it is, but instead because it is the one most requested. It's the symptom of all symptoms in benzo withdrawal. Over the coming months, we will tackle other symptom groups in no particular order and not necessarily consecutively either. We, we have other content to fit in here and there. But eventually, we'll get to all 14 groups, perhaps even doubling up on a few episodes. So anxiety. Whew. Am I sure I want to tackle this one today? <laughs> oh, you know, perhaps something smaller like rashes or unusual smells that might, might go a little bit quicker. No, I guess not. Okay, well, let's dive right in feet first. And let's structure this just a bit. You know what? I'm going to start out with an introduction to anxiety, and then I'm going to talk a bit about anxiety in benzo withdrawal, and then we'll take a look at what I did and what others have done and some tips and tricks for managing anxiety. Sound good? For this feature, I will pull some references from my book, um, some from more recent articles, and some, well, just from our personal experiences and those of people I've spoken to. So that brings us to our intro Anxiety, anxiety is normal, okay? It's a human, physiological, psychological, emotional process. It's often in response to stressful situations, but I really can't go too far without talking a bit about fight or flight. You've probably heard of that one. So let's start there real quick. The fight or flight response is a physiological response to perceived danger. It helps prepare the body for fighting or fleeing. When triggered, the body releases this cascade of hormones like epinephrine, norepinephrine, estrogen, testosterone, dopamine, and others. These trigger reactions in the body, which includes increased heart rate, breathing rate, muscle tension, and an increase in oxygenated blood to the larger muscle groups so they're ready to move. You see, now the body is prepared. It's prepared to survive. But there's a problem here, a big problem. We don't experience true risk-of-life situations as much as we used to. The, the amygdala part of our brain, which is one of the oldest parts of our brains, triggers this fight-or-flight response, and it can't always identify a real threat from a perceived threat. And this response is often triggered when we really don't need it. When the human race was in its infancy, our lives were simpler, but also more dangerous. We spent most of our days seeking food, water, shelter, and warmth, but also spent a lot of that time eluding danger. But things have changed. Few of us must face real life-threatening situations every day. And this state of preparation, this state of readiness that is in our bodies and in our minds, this is called anxiety. Even in the modern world today, anxiety is still a regular part of life. When, when that car almost hit you on 25th Street, or you wanted to ask that boy out to the dance, or your plane hit turbulence somewhere over Ohio, that anxiety kicks in. For most people, it's a normal part of life, and it doesn't cause any long-term complications. It becomes a problem when it becomes excessive. 
It becomes a problem when it becomes chronic, when it interferes with a healthy life and keeps you from doing what you want to do. For some, anxiety includes excessive worry, insomnia, chronic nervousness, panic attacks, stomach distress, muscle tics and tremors, heart palpitations, hot and cold flushes, depression, even suicidal ideation. For some, anxiety is a life-altering condition, one from which we want nothing more than to escape. The author David H. Barlow said in his book, Anxiety and Its Disorders from 2002, the following quote, Anxiety kills relatively few people, but many more would welcome death as an alternative to the paralysis and suffering resulting from anxiety in its severest forms, end quote. When it comes to the causes of anxiety disorders, things get blurry. And I'm not going to go into detail here because, well, we're already running long, so we're going to skip through them quickly. But let me just mention a few possible factors, and it's probably a combination of these that normally play in. But these include heredity, brain chemistry, medical conditions, life events, trauma, stress, gut bacteria, brain plasticity, neuropeptide Y. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But you know, before you get too hard on yourself about being an anxious person, there's an upside to this too. I mentioned this in the book, and I want to share it very briefly, but people who worry a lot have a high level of activity in the brain that responds to danger and threats. And perhaps the danger is real. Perhaps it's not. But that response just might keep the anxious person safe from threats that other people might miss. While constant worrying can drive us crazy, it can also keep us out of harm's way. And you know what? Anxious people are also often more intelligent and creative. A simple term used for those of us with anxiety is overthinkers. Our minds are always working, constantly creating, and that's sometimes a good thing. You know, I just wish I had that little switch where I could turn it off when I didn't want it and on when I did. But if you suffer from anxiety... There's a lot of those out here who are in the same boat. You are not alone. In fact, the number of people suffering from anxiety has been increasing rapidly. Let's take a look at anxiety and withdrawal. Some of you have dealt with anxiety your entire lives, but some of you have never had a problem until you took benzos. Either way, for many of us, during benzo withdrawal, anxiety becomes a serious, never-ending, obsessive circus of fear. Anxiety shows its ugly head in five specific ways during withdrawal. Um, and these include generalized anxiety, hypochondria, panic attacks, paranoid thoughts, and phobias. I had almost every one of these during my withdrawal. Generalized anxiety was very common, and it's still with me today. Hypochondria, well... I went to the ER twice and had over a hundred appointments with doctors, specialists, physical therapists, and other healthcare workers during my withdrawal. In fact, in a three-year period, I had five EKGs just to make sure I wasn't having a heart attack. And the most recent of those was just a few months ago. As for panic attacks, I don't think I ever had one before Benzo withdrawal. The first one I ever recall is that night that I learned... I was dependent, and what that might mean. I haven't had one in a while now, and I sure hope it stays that way. 
As for phobias, acrophobia was a good one for me, fear of heights. I had that one before withdrawal, but it really escalated during withdrawal. And I had a few others there too. And finally, as for paranoid thoughts, I luckily avoided this one. But I also had a pretty stable home life with a loving and caring spouse, and I'm sure that helped a lot. You know, unfortunately, this anxiety in withdrawal is markedly different from the anxiety some of us had prior to benzos. And this is the point that so many of us want everybody else to know. It's so hard for us to explain to somebody who hasn't felt benzo-induced anxiety. It's so hard for us to explain to them what this is truly like. It is extreme. Damage to our GABA receptors and a learning deficit on top of that, among other culprits, has made us physiologically challenged to handle normal, everyday stressors. And this anxiety can be overwhelming, to say the least. Debilitating is probably a better word for it. I still have anxiety every day. It's better than it was a couple of years ago, but there are times when it still gets the better of me. I have to use tools every day and work hard to manage it. But those tools do help. And I'm where I am now in part because of them. And now let's move into our last section of this feature. What can we do about the anxiety? (laughs) There's the real question. You know, I talked a lot about this in the three-part series, Managing the Fear of Benzo Withdrawal. It was in episodes three, four, and five of the podcast. Managing the fear means managing your anxiety, and there are some key areas of focus that can help you become more mentally stable during withdrawal. If this is an area which you think might help, go back and check out those episodes. As for anxiety, here's what I did. I did what so many of us do. I used avoidance. (laughs) I avoided everything I could that might trigger an anxious episode. Since our reactions are so severe to certain triggers during this time, and since so often one obsession can escalate and lead to others, I I found it helpful to avoid anything that would stimulate that anxiety. And this meant isolation. Since I was unable to work in an office for a while, I became isolated. I, I worked on the book and spent time at home with my wife. She also works from home, so we created this little world, this bubble, this cozy little place where I could heal. But you know what? A- avoidance and isolation... They're not long-term solutions. I didn't know it at the beginning, but I had built this protective bubble. I may have mentioned that before. Sometimes I refer to it as my box, cocoon, sometimes even my prison cell. However you look at it, it's very restrictive, and my bubble got smaller and smaller and smaller the more anxiety I felt. I limited my exposure to friends and even family. I didn't fly at all. I didn't travel without making sure I can control every aspect of the trip. I disconnected from all news, especially stories about health, politics, and anything else that irritated me, which was just about everything. While that helped for a while, the bubble never stopped shrinking. It was never enough. I could lock the door and avoid the world for just so long. It helps for a while, but at some point I have to face the world again. I finally made the decision that I needed to grow my bubble instead of shrinking it. It's a struggle at times, but I just keep reminding myself that I'm, I'm, I'm retraining my brain so it can handle the real world. 
It's, it's my own little version of exposure therapy. Hard work and the right tools got me where I am today. It's really that basic. Here's what worked for me. Please remember, though, these are mine, and they work with my values, my sensibilities, my belief systems. Yours might be completely different, and that's fine. Use what works for you. First and foremost for me was mindfulness and meditation, something I practice to this day. In my research, I discovered repeated studies touting the effectiveness of meditation. So I now have been meditating for over five years. I, I try to do it every day. I miss a day or two now and then, even a week occasionally. But I always return to it and try again because it makes a difference. Even my wife notices on days when I haven't meditated. I also tried yoga. Um, I've not been as consistent at this lately, and I need to be. But I was during my withdrawal, and it really helped. I've also disconnected, and this was a big one for me, and it kind of went hand-in-hand hand with isolation, so you got to be careful with this too. But first off, I've reduced screen time significantly. I am rarely on my phone. I've reduced my TV and movie watching from probably four hours a day to close to one hour. And I'm only on social media for Benzo Free. I almost never post anything on my own Facebook page. Instead, I read. I take walks. And I spend time with my friends and family. It's very Huga of me. Yes, Huga. H-Y-G-G-E. If you don't know, look it up. I probably uncovered over a hundred useful tips for handling anxiety during my research. I was even thinking about writing a small book about them, and I might do that someday. <laughs> but these things aren't hard to find. Just do an internet search for anxiety tools, and, and you'll find several useful lists. Many of the tips are backed by science and studies. These include gratitude exercises, journaling, singing and dancing, reading, volunteering, walking, and so many others. You know, I'll probably dedicate an upcoming episode just to this list. If this is something you'd like to hear, let me know. Remember, your withdrawal is a marathon, not a sprint. Every little thing you can do along the way helps. And it builds, and it's another tool for you to put in your toolbox. These things matter, and they make a difference. Ah, in closing, I just want to say, anxiety is real. Anyone who has suffered it can tell you that. And anxiety during benzo withdrawal, well, as I mentioned in the book, it's like anxiety on caffeine, speed, and cocaine all at the same time. If this sounds like you, protect yourself. But also know when enough is enough. Take responsibility for your healing and slowly start to get back out there to face the world. It's an amazing, colorful, beautiful, scary, and exciting world, and it's just waiting for us. You're going to get through this. I truly believe that. And that brings us to our closing. Please bear with me for about 25 seconds, as we always do, for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional, nor is he engaged in rendering medical, health, or psychological advice, nor any other kind of personal or professional services. Withdrawal, tapering, or any change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, theanodiazepines, or any other prescription drug should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. 
Our next episode is episode 10, and it will be released next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me today. And please, as always, let me know how I did. Your feedback means a lot to me. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.